Happy 420. I'm Kai, and you are listening to Stone Cold Murder. Just a PSA, if you have any information to help solve a crime, you can go to www.crimestoppers.com to report any information anonymously. Thank you for tuning in for Season 2, Episode 3, The Keddie Cabin Murder. This podcast contains material that may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. All right. Today, my guest is the one, the only, Benzo Decode, my brother, and the creator of our theme song, our dope-ass theme music. How are you today? I'm well. I'm well. Thanks for having me. Yes, thanks for being on the pod. He's out here on BK, and I snagged him up for an episode real quick. <laughs> yes, indeed. I really appreciate you doing it tonight. Yeah. So, how are you? Into, do you listen to any true crime, or is this kind of going to be a shock to the system for you? I've been known to watch like a, like a first 48 type of vibe. Okay. You know, like, the, like that kind of vibe. Yeah. Forensic Files. Yes, I love Forensic Files. So, yeah, definitely uh, excited to learn new, learn some, you know, about a new case. Yeah. I didn't want to like completely shock you if you're not into <laughs> any true crime because <laughs> I've done it before. Right, like, uh, that's what this is about. Should have known by the name. Yeah, <laughs> get you a little bit more stone to get ready. You know, we are stone, Definitely. so <laughs> ready, <laughs> ready to start it. So, have you heard of the Keddy Cabin Murders? Never. No. All right. So, today we'll be talking about the Sharp family. 36-year-old Sue and her family had just moved to California from Connecticut about a year before this incident happened. So, they were freshly new to California and she had just divorced her husband and decided she was going to take her kids out to California to kind of start a new life and a fresh start and, you know, get away from everything out in Connecticut. So, Sue decided to take the six of them. She had 15-year-old John... 14-year-old Sheila, 12-year-old Tina, 10-year-old Rick, and 5-year-old Greg. So they all moved to California together. Yes, her by herself? By herself, yeah. She was like, fuck this guy, I am leaving, and we're not coming back. So they moved to the town of Keddy, which was a formerly popular family resort, but it had recently just had some financial setbacks, so they turned the cabins where the Sharp family ended up moving into into low-income housing, and the Sharp family ended up moving into Cabin 28 mm. in the Keddy Resort. I sound like their first mistake. Yes, a cabin <laughs> kind of sounds scary already, right? Yeah. It's like the start of any horror movie, like, oh, we're, <laughs> we're leaving <laughs> our Cabin old life. Cabin literally sounds like a horror film. Yeah, I feel like there might. I'm not doing oh, it. there is a, a horror movie based off of this case mm. called Cabin 28, so that's oh. probably what you've heard. Yeah. It is actually a movie. That's crazy. Yeah. I don't think I've ever heard of that, but it sounds like it's appropriate. Yeah. And, yeah, it sounds like any start of a horror movie. <laughs> We're going to leave our old town behind and get a fresh start. and It'll be great, right? Nope. Don't do it. <laughs> don't ever Stay do home. Yeah. Ugh. So the house, or the cabin, had three bedrooms. The younger boys, Rick and Greg, took a room in the front of the house while Sue and Tina shared the second room. And Sheila took the third room. And the oldest son, Johnny, took the unfinished basement. So they were all settled in. Um, Now that they kind of lived in a small, isolated town with only one road going in and out, it was very different from 
this bigger trailer that they had previously li been living in. But from every account of all the people that lived around the Sharps, they said that they seemed to be looking up and happy and enjoying their new found peace and quiet. So the Sharps lived in cabin 28. They lived there about five months before the start of our story here. On April 11th, 1981, at around 1.30 p.m., Sue and Sheila drove to the neighboring town of Quincy to pick up the oldest son, John, who had been hanging out with one of his friends, 17-year-old Dana Wingate. He was a Quincy High School senior, or junior, I'm sorry, and apparently was known for being a bit of a troublemaker in the area. Sue and Sheila picked up the boys and headed home to their house to hang out till about 3.30 p.m. when uh, John and Dana decided they were going to leave again and they were going to come back later that evening because Dana was going to spend the night with John and they would just go hang out with some friends back in Quincy, which I feel like it was a lot of driving around for them just to come back like an hour later, but, you know, teenagers. So how did they get back? Like she picked them up. Um, I think they had a friend pick them up, but they were planning on <coughs> hitchhiking back, and Hell Sue was no. like, please do terrible. not do that. <laughs> Who plans on hitchhiking? That sounds like a I guess the fucking Hitchhiking Indians. is like a last resort, like, <laughs> I'm really down bad, oh. like, I need to get... <laughs> yeah, I couldn't even imagine. <laughs> even like, just like... I'm just gonna hitchhike no. my way back, no. Fuck no. Sounds but like the 80s, I guess, they did not care, and How Sue made them... Um, 15, and his friend was 17, which I wouldn't think very many people would pick you up either. But it was a different time, I guess. I don't know. I don't a know. long time people would pick you up. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for real. <laughs> people you don't want to be picked <laughs> right. up by. <laughs> like, uh, like a target. Absolutely. <laughs> that would be my first reason to never do it. <laughs> so Sue was like, please do not hitchhike. We do not want you hitchhiking. Just walk home or get someone to drop you off. And they promised her that they wouldn't do it, even though they knew they were going to do it anyways. <laughs> so they were like, yes, of course, Mom. Um, we're leaving. And they left and headed down to Quincy. They were hanging out with some friends and then headed to a party that evening. The two teenage boys would later be spotted at a street corner in Quincy trying to hitchhike home sometime between like 9.30 and 10 p.m. So back at the cabin, the rest of the family were having just like a normal Saturday night. They were chilling. Sue was hanging out at home that night with her two daughters. Or while her two daughters hung at the neighbor's house next door. Tina would actually return home later that night at around 9.30. While Sheila stayed the night at the neighbor's house. Um, Sue just wanted Tina to come home because she was younger and wanted her to stay at her house so sue's younger sons rick and greg were also having a slumber party but at the sharp house at cabin 28 mm -hmm. with their friend justin smart who was also a neighbor the next morning after all of the sleepovers had happened sheila's waking up and she's walking back home she opened the front door of cabin 28 and was met with a extremely gruesome scene the bodies of sue her brother, John, and his friend, Dana, were found bound with medical and electrical tape and extremely brutalized. And that's where we stopped for a smoke break. And we're back. We left ya with Sheila finding Sue, her brother, John, and his friend, Dana, murdered in the front room of the home. 
So, oddly enough, as horrible as the crime scene was, the two younger boys, Ricky and Greg, and their friend, 12-year-old Justin Smart, were found unharmed and untouched in one of the bedrooms in the cabin. Something personal or what? That's what we're thinking. Or a killer with mercy. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, what do you think? Do you think it's like someone they know? I think it's a mercy thing. Do you think they were above killing kids? How old are the kids? Justin was 12, Rick was 10, and Greg is 5. Sociopaths. Uh huh. You <laughs> never sure know. They would just leave the kids alone, but yeah. sounds sounds like maybe somebody they knew. Right. So they had apparently slept through the entire massacre, which had taken oh. place just like feet in front of their bedroom while they were sleeping. Children. Yeah. After seeing the scene, Sheila immediately ran to her neighbor's house for help. Her friend's dad helped retrieve the three boys through their bedroom window so that they didn't have to walk through. The crime scene. and so they like, still didn't know what happened? Yeah, apparently not. At this point, they were not saying that they knew what happened. <laughs> like, why are we going through the window? <laughs> yeah, like, what's happening? We're playing no, a game. Just, we're just playing a game. <laughs> so Tina, which was the younger daughter, she was nowhere to be found in the cabin or the surrounding areas. And it would actually take the police hours to realize that she was missing. Which kind of sucked. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> like, it really sucked. She's like the middle child or what? Mm-hmm. Yep. The middle child always forgot <laughs> for Tina. Investigators were called about an hour after the initial discovery of her family. And they did end up calling the FBI in. But they did not have any crime scene like FBI people. They were all um, um, just like regular FBI agents. They weren't crime scene agents and everybody thought it was really weird because like why would you just send not specialized FBI you know okay. so that was a huge red flag for some people on the beginning Deputy Hank Kilmet was the first to arrive on the scene and he reported it to be a notably violent scene he said there was blood everywhere on the walls the bottom of the victim's shoe Sue's bare feet the bedding in Tina's room, the furniture, the ceiling, the doors, and on the back of the, the steps. The ceiling? Mm-hmm. Rough. Rough, rough, rough. Yeah. And because of the amount of blood all over the crime scene, and it not being contained in one general location, the investigators believed that the bodies had been moved and then arranged in the positions they were found in. It's just eerie. John was found closest to the front door. He was found face up with his throat slit. His hands were covered in blood and they were bound with medical tape. His friend Dana was on the floor beside him on his stomach, laying partially on a pillow. His head was severely damaged and thought to be inflicted with like a blunt object. Yes. He had been manually strangled, and both John and Dana's ankles were tied with electrical tape, and they were tied together, foot to foot, so they were connected at the ankles, Hmm. which is odd, right? Sue had been covered partially with a blanket, and her throat had been cut also. She was naked from the waist down and tightly gagged with like a bandana and her own underwear secured with medical tape. 
She had injuries consistent with a struggle and had an imprint of a butt of an .880 pellet gun on the side of her head. So someone hit her in the head with like the end of the gun and it left an imprint on her head. Damn, an imprint of a gun is crazy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> an imprint with a headbutt, like... Yeah, you have to hit someone hard, I right. feel like, you know? Like leave, really hard. Leave like a logo, like the branding, serial number. <laughs> yeah, like what the fuck? And on top of everything else that they do, that's pretty brutal. So John and Sue, John, Sue, and Dana all suffered blunt force trauma by hammer or hammers. Mm. And they also sustained multiple stab wounds on top of it. A bent steak knife was found on the floor. A butcher knife, a claw hammer were both covered in blood and were found side by side on a small wooden table near the entry to the kitchen. Yeah, so that's a lot of different kind of weapons for one. I feel like a lot of overkill for two. So the cabin's home phone had been left off the hook and all the lights had been shut off and the window curtains closed. Hmm. So someone was like concealing it. Yeah, very premeditated. Mm -hmm. The home did not indicate any forced entry, but detectives did recover an unidentified fingerprint on a handrail on the back stairs. Just one fingerprint? Mm Mm-hmm. Allegedly, though, a lot of potential evidence was collected at the scene, but because this was like pre-DNA testing, very little was helpful at the time. What year was this again? 1981. Okay. Hmm. All right, so now you guys think that part of the story was crazy. It's about to get even more crazy. And this is where we'll take another smoke break. (laughs) And we're back. Here's where it gets... Crazy. So, it was eventually discovered that Tina Sharp was missing. The FBI arrived on the scene. Yeah, eventually. Like, How long does it take you to realize that someone's not there? Right? The sheriff at the time, Doug Thomas, and his deputy, Lieutenant Don Stoy, were not initially able to find an apparent motive. They said the murders seemed to be random acts of violence, which it seems very personal to me. The way their, like, throat was cut and everything like that, like, doesn't seem random at all. And no forced entry. Like, I don't see how that's not... Police discovered that around 1.30 a.m., a woman and her boyfriend in the cabin next door woke up because they heard what they described as muffled screams. And they said neither of them knew where it was coming from, so they just went back to bed. Like, could you imagine just going back to bed and not even looking around to what happened? I mean... Guess if somebody's getting murdered, like I'm probably not gonna go investigate. I'm probably not gonna go like save the day. No, but maybe call an ambulance. I, yeah, just just hear <laughs> yeah, hearing the screams and being like, well, I don't know where they're coming from, so I just go back to bed. It's kind of wild. I would like to say that I would <laughs> do something about it, but I'd probably be like, oh well, probably better about my my business. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, yeah, that's crazy though. Yeah. Like, but, like, waking up, <clears throat> you might think that you're, like, dreaming or, like, yeah. you're not really, like, I don't know, maybe it's a TV. I don't yeah. know. I mean. It's like, did you really hear it? Yeah, did I really yeah. hear that? If it was standing up and then waking up the next day and hearing that somebody got, like, brutally murdered right next to us, <laughs> like, oh, shit. Like, I did hear I that. I was listening to that happen. That's wild. Yeah, wouldn't that it be crazy? So after finding out this information about the neighbors, investigators wanted to again talk to the three boys, Ricky, Greg, and Justin. 
because they were like, how the heck did these guys, these three boys sleep through this whole thing, you know? If the neighbors could hear the screaming, these kids definitely could hear the screaming. That's a little fishy. Right? So they figured there was no way all three of them had slept through that whole thing. And the boys initially claimed that they did sleep through it. But eventually, Justin Smart later would tell investigators that he saw Sue with two men in the house that night. One of the men had a mustache and long hair, and the other one was clean-shaven with short hair, and both were wearing glasses. And one of the men was carrying a hammer, he said. Justin reported that John and Dana entered the home while the men were there with Sue, and both of the boys started to argue with the two men, and then started a fight. And then the, the fight- The boys started to argue with the men? Uh-huh. And then the fight got super violent, and Tina was taken out of the cabin's back door by one of the men. Immediately, Justin Smart's father, Martin Smart, who was the Sharp's other neighbor, and a man who was staying with the Smarts, who was an ex-convict named John Bo Bodeby. <laughs> John Bo Bodeby. Yeah, which is a whole mouthful to say. country motherfucker. Yep. <laughs> They were like the two lead suspects in the case because they kind of sort of looked like the description that Justin had already given to the investigators. Oh, the dude with the mustache and the... uh Uh-huh. Which kind of sounded fishy because it's like, okay, long hair and a mustache, great. Like, that's super generalized. So, but he didn't say, my dad? Uh Uh-uh. And it would kind of explain why those boys were untouched. Because his son was having a sleepover at the cabin. Bo was known to have connections with organized crime in the area, actually. Which, I don't know. John Bo? Yeah, John Bo. He did um, some drug dealings, I guess, in the town. And it was reported that both men had been seen in suits and ties behaving oddly in the bar the night before. So, <laughs> I'm not really sure, like, what they were doing that made them look odd or if it was, like, just the fact that they were dressed up. <laughs> that was odd, but apparently it was out of the norm for these guys. Sounds like it. Yeah, right? In Martin's first and only interview with law enforcement, he claimed that he had been at the local bar named the Keddie's Back Door with his wife, Marilyn Smart, and his friend, John Bodeby. There, he had seen two suspicious men, who ironically bore striking resemblance to him and his friend, John, wearing suits at the bar. Hmm. But his estranged wife, Marilyn, would tell police that the three returned home at around 11 that night, and she went to bed, but Martin and Bo decided to return to the bar a short time later. (laughs) And the two men stayed out drinking until like 1.30. In the same interview, which took place the day after the murders, Martin told police that he had heard about the victims being killed with a hammer. Information gets around fast, I guess. Mm-hmm. He knew exactly which murder, what weapon, murder weapon, you was. know? <laughs> what did his uh, son tell him? Yeah, right. <laughs> and Martin told the police that he actually had a hammer that matched the one that was discovered. But that hammer had gone missing like a short time before the murder, so he didn't know where it was. You know how they just go missing. Convenient. Yeah. <laughs> but it wasn't me, though. It wasn't me at all, no. That's crazy. No, mm-mm. Another knife was actually recovered in a trash can outside the Keddie General Store, and authorities believed this knife to also be linked to the murder. So another weapon to add to the pile of... The knife, the throat cut. Oh, yeah. Marilyn Smart 
who's Martin's wife and the mother of Justin, had left her husband on the day that the victims were discovered. She provided Plumas County Sheriff's Department with a handwritten letter sent to her and signed by her husband, Martin. It read, I've paid the price of your love, and now that I've bought it with four people's lives, you tell me you are through. Great. What else do you want? And this letter was not taken seriously as a confession or followed up at any time during the investigation. Wow. Right? Yeah. What the fuck? (laughs) Sounds like all the evidence you need right there. I'm saying. So, Marilyn even admitted in in a 2008 documentary that she thought her husband and his friend Bo were responsible. Sheriff Doug Thomas contradicted this and stated that Martin had successfully passed a polygraph test. Because, you know, polygraphs are so freaking accurate every fucking time. They can't even be admitted in court. Like, that is not a valid way of, like, determining anything. Because everybody knows how they work. (laughs) Right, exactly. It's fucking stupid. It was later confirmed that Martin was close to Sheriff Thomas. Deeper and deeper. That's, how, that's, how, that's why all these movies do that same plot because it happens in real life. Yes, exactly. Like, like everybody's like, oh, this would never like happen. The sheriff, like the sheriff beating on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Shit happens. Sheriff Thomas eventually resigned three months into the investigation and took a different job at the Sacramento DOJ. Three years later, after the tragic murder, a man discovered a human skull in Butte County, about 30 miles from Kitty. Near the remains, detectives found a kid's blanket, a blue nylon jacket, a pair of jeans with a missing back pocket, and an empty surgical tape dispenser. And that's where we'll take a smoke break. (laughs) Alright, so the remains were identified and confirmed that it was the body of 12-year-old Tina Sharp. Mm -hmm. Soon after finding Tina, the Butte County Sheriff's Department received an anonymous call. The person on the other end asked, I was wondering if they caught the murderer up in Plumas County a couple years ago, where a 12-year-old girl was never found. Which is like a fucking strange way to phrase that. Like, it barely makes any sense. But after finding Tina's remains and getting the anonymous call, nothing more came of this case. And it just sat cold for years. Yeah, it's because that sheriff buried it. Gotta be. And Sheila Sharp would tell reporters, which is the surviving daughter, she would tell reporters, I was told that the suspects were told to get out of town. So to me, that means it was covered up. So she was even told that by someone. Until 2013, the case was cold, and the case eventually reopened with new investigators. Plumas County Sheriff Greg Hagwood and Special Investigator Mike Gamberg. The tape of the anonymous tip that was called in regarding Tina was found sealed in case files, completely untouched by Plumas County Sheriff's Department until it was reopened by these two detectives. So they were like, what the fuck? These guys are catching on to the mishaps that happened years before. Shit. So Not just mishaps, cover-ups. Like, mm-hmm. Huge cover-ups. Yeah. But for the new detective, Mike Gamberg, the case was actually personal for him. He knew the victims, Dana and John, and he was actually their martial art teacher. So he like vowed to set the case straight once mm-hmm. he started it. 
And Hagwood was actually 15 at the time of the murders and was friends with both of the victims. So he wow. eventually became a sheriff and was like, I'm going to fucking take on this case. That's cool. Yeah. Um, a hammer was found in a dried up pond in Keddy in 2016 by Mike Gameberg and is believed to be another murder weapon. Like, how many hammers and fucking knives? <laughs> I feel like it's already a lot. Like, I already named point. like a dozen. Yeah. Yeah. That same year, investigator Gameberg met up with a counselor at the Reno Veterans Administration. The counselor told him that in May of 1981, Martin Smart had actually confessed to the killing of Sue and Tina Sharp. Yeah, Martin did in that damn note. Right, exactly. That's like that's like making a song about killing somebody mm-hmm. like afterward. And, like, and they're oh, just like, oh. Just art. It's just art. It's just a note. It's, I can't take that He's seriously. <laughs> Paid for you with four lives or something. Yeah. <laughs> That's craziness. It is. That's crazy. It is fucked. Yeah. He said, I killed the woman and her daughter, but I didn't have anything to do with the boys. When the DOJ was alerted to the confession in 1981, it was dismissed as hearsay. The fuck? <laughs> Coming straight from and the written suspects. Too. You know what I mean? Like, what the fuck? The tragedy is widely believed to be a love triangle gone wrong, which I don't know if I, I don't know if I'm on the board with this theory. Some of the investigators who picked up the case in 2013 tie it to an even larger plot. To investigator Gainberg, it is clear that the DOJ and Thomas Sheriff's deputy covered it up. It's the, he said it's covered up is the way it sounds. He alleged that Bo and Martin fit into a larger drug smuggling scheme that involved the federal government as well, mm. which I'm pretty on board with that. I don't think it's the love triangle thing. I think it had to do with some drug smuggling and some dirty cops and Damn. some connections. So Martin was known as a drug dealer and Bo was also connected to the Chicago Crime Network with financial interests in drug distribution. So. so you said that you thought that she caught, like knew what he was doing or something? I don't know. I, I wonder. Was he like trying to sell the kids drugs and then she like caught He was like, damn. Yeah, I, I feel it. like maybe could be that. Maybe she was buying some or one of the kids found it or his wife had like confessed to her and she was like trying to get her away from him because she left him the day that the bodies were found. So it was like she was already planning on leaving him, it seemed like. So people say that they think so it was a love she triangle. She didn't leave because of what happened? She didn't find out what happened and like, oh, I gotta get the fuck no, out. No, she did, yeah. Oh, the, the day that the bodies were found, she fucking left. Yeah. So she might have, like, she definitely thought that Martin did it. So why is the kind of question, you know what I mean? So it could have had to do with drugs and her finding out or... Yeah, because it's like it didn't catch her off guard on when she was like, oh, shit, I got to leave. Or she's like, oh, my gosh, how could he do this? Like, right. He, he wouldn't do something like that. Right. Like, she was gone, this. like, yeah, immediately. Like, oh, shit, he did. Hmm. Yeah. Weird. And she told the sheriff immediately, too, that she was like, no, he did it. Like, I believe he did it. And here's a note, you know. What the hell? So, that yeah. That don't make no sense. No. That don't the- make no sense that she said, that she admitted that she thought that he did it and then handed the note to him. Yeah. They were like, oh. I don't know. We're going to keep looking for some yeah. different suspects. Yeah, I think it's someone else. That's Definitely. Great. That, doesn't, that doesn't fit. <laughs> yeah, weird, right? they fit right? the description. Yeah, and they fit the description. The son was spared. 
You know what I mean? They were friends with the detective on the case. So it's like there's too many pieces fitting together. (laughs) And they said that this might be an explanation to why the two lead suspects were given special treatment and told to leave town by Sheriff Thomas. Mm -hmm. And why this case was handled so sloppily. It's because he was involved. Sounds like it. Yep. Although both Martin Smart and Bo Bodeby are now dead, in 2018, a new DNA from a piece of tape was found at the crime scene and was linked to a different living suspect. So maybe an additional one. So they believe that there are at least two people who are still alive who were accessories after the fact in the crime. And one of them is still prob- is one of the anonymous callers. Guilty conscience. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Who seemed to have a special knowledge about like what happened to Tina and all that. So detective says, It is my belief that there were more than two people who were involved in the totality of the crime, the disposal of the evidence, and the abduction of the little girl. Hagwood said, We are convinced that there are a handful of people that fit those roles who are still alive. Gainberg and Hagwood remain determined to solve the Keddy murders and give closure to the community of Keddy, which have been haunted by the quadruple homicide for over four decades. They say they are closer than ever to cracking the case in the last few years. Investigators tested the hammer and the knife for possible DNA evidence, and the FBI examined the anonymous caller for potential voice match. But other than that, this case does remain unsolved to this day. A $5,000 reward for any information leading to the arrest of the killers is available. And if you have any information, you are encouraged to call in your tips to 530-283-6360. Before we get into our final thoughts, I'm just going to go over a little bit of who the victims were. I just want to say... This is like my most important part of the case and it is very frustrating to me because I want to put like who they are in the forefront of most of these cases Hmm. and it is extremely hard to find any information on victims Hmm. that are not about the murder and I find it extremely sad because I I would like to like shed some light but like a lot of the time if there is information it's information that's like bashing the victim or like being like oh they were a criminal or she was a sex worker who really liked to get around you know it's like Hmm. why don't we have more information it's all about the murder Hmm. it makes me really sad but I did find a little bit of information about these guys so In 1979, Glenna, Sue Sharp, and her five children, John, Sheila, Tina, Rick, and Greg, moved from Connecticut to escape their abusive husband and father. First moving to Quincy, California, they lived in Sue's brother's trailer, and then eventually to Cabin 28. Sue began taking typewriting classes and working a part-time job at the Quincy Elks Lodge, eager to get her family's life together and find a way to support herself and her children. For a long time, Sue and her kids were accustomed to moving a lot as her ex-husband had been in the Navy, but they now look forward to being in one place for a while. Sue enrolled in a federal education program that gave her money to attend classes at a local community college. And her classmates said that she was a good student who worked hard and kept excellent grades. They said she was a loner who didn't join in on the coffee breaks and preferred to study alone rather than join in groups. 
The children were enrolled in local schools down in Quincy, just a few miles south of Ketting. They made friends and became well-known among the teachers and school staff. The move to Ketty had turned into a positive experience for the entire Sharp family. They were pleasantly surprised at the community that they had around them. John was 15 years old and a freshman at Quincy High School. He was described as a little bit cocky and full of himself, but a good kid and good brother. And honestly, the cocky part is probably just his age because he was 15. So <laughs> I feel yeah. a lot of us were cocky at 15, you know? <laughs> he was a tough leader type who was best friends with Dina Wingate. Dina Wingate was 17 years old and described as a likable but immature for his age, but pleasant to be around. A mild-natured boy who enjoyed having a good time. He had a bit of a troubled past, ending up on probation for breaking into someone's house with Johnny and stealing some marijuana in <laughs> 1998. <laughs> Which, whatever. I'm not mad about it. <laughs> um, but both boys enjoyed parties and girls and were great friends with one another. Both Johnny and Dana were martial arts students of Sheriff Gameberg and worked on a painting crew with Sheriff Hagwood. Tina Sharp was 12 years old and was described as a shy girl and a private person with secret hiding places where she liked to go and be alone. She had a few close friends and for the most part was just an average 12-year-old girl. In her book, Sheila wrote, My mom's character has been subject to all manner of cruel suspicion, including accusations that she was a drug addict, a drug dealer, a prostitute, or at the very least, an unfit mother. For the record, she was none of these things. She was a kind and loving mother who was doing her very best to raise five children alone. She was dutiful in her attention to each of us, and while we lived in relative poverty, we also lived in a home of love. My mother's kindness and grace also extended beyond her own family, which may have ultimately been her downfall. Sheila says that Sue would have been 71 and the end of March of last year. Even still to this day, I sit here and think what my life would be like with her here. With the killings of her family members, she said, I didn't have a big brother to look up to. I lost my only sister, and we were actually very close. I struggle with that, and I go through moments where I just start to cry for no reason. But then I also think it made me stronger, she said, because I had to look out for my two younger brothers. They're the ones that have kept me going. To have this solved would finally give my family some closure, some answers as to why it happened and why it, looked, it took so long to solve. I don't think there is really any type of final closure in a murder case. We still have to live on without our loved ones. Of her mother, Sheila adds, I miss talking to her, going to her if I have an issue. And also, I'm growing older. What can I expect in my later years? She did at least get to see her first grandchild born, but she doesn't get the great-grandkids. She doesn't get to have that. My kids don't know who my mom is. What would she want them to know? I would like my kids and grandkids to know that she was a very caring and kind person, Sheila says of Sue. She would have done anything for them and probably spoiled them rotten. All right, so what are y'all's final thoughts on the case? Honestly, I was going to speculate on how I thought she got in that situation, but uh -huh. it is kind of a shame that, you know, people do speculate on it and tend to think that she was involved in some kind of, you know, drugs or yeah, prostitution or she was just 
Like it was her fault, basically. Right, so, and that's the thing is you can shit, really. you can speculate in a way that yeah maybe this happened, but also still do it like to the character of the person. Be like, no matter if you are a sex worker or someone who buys drugs or deals drugs, that is never a reason for murder. So regardless of if you're in that situation, yeah, it may be more quote unquote dangerous, but like anybody can get murdered and it is definitely the murderer's fault regardless. So even if we speculate, I think as long as we're not being disrespectful, you know, because yeah, sometimes you do get in those situations and that's just kind of the facts, but she didn't seem like she was a bad mother, you know what I mean? And maybe other situations got her there but it's ultimately this fucker's fault for thinking that he could murder someone like that and that it was okay you know yeah i mean it did say too though that she was there was like some more like some sexual nuances to like how she was found right yes yeah yeah i don't know sounds like either she went for she went to them for drugs and they tried to take advantage of her or Mm -hmm. she was like, you know, they hired her for that and tried to take it too far or something like mm-hmm. that. And it sounds like the boys walked in on something. Walked in on something, yeah, yeah definitely. And regardless of what it was, yeah, they and, walked in on something for sure. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. And tried to tried to stop it and got got killed. And then it sounds like the little girl that was like, oh, we'll just take the little girl. And mm-hmm. it sounds like I want to say though that like the drug thing because of the. Like, maybe three or four, like, total people that were involved. You right. Like, the two other people that might have been involved. So, maybe it was... Hmm. They said maybe that they, she was found 50 miles away from the house. They sued? Um, the daughter. When oh, yeah. she was eventually found. 50 miles is a lot. Like, a little while. <laughs> Unless both the daughter and the mom were targets. Because they were neighbors, so... People are gross, you know? For some reason, my this was like my just first instinct, the picture I painted. Mm-hmm. That so the, the mom went over to the neighbor's mm-hmm. house to get some drugs. Mm-hmm. So instead of them coming over to her house, she went over. And then because there were some other people there, they decided like, oh, she, because she's by herself, let's take advantage of her sexually. Mm-hmm. And they did something to her. And then in order to like, cover it up they took her back to her house mm. and then that's when the kids found her. them like either maybe still doing something to her at the house or mm-hmm. like trying to make it look like it was something else you know because yeah. to... they said that they thought the bodies were definitely moved mm-hmm. they yeah. did specify that for sure yeah and then and then it's probably since they had the little girl they were like already rapists probably yeah so that's probably... yeah that's kind of what I think that it grows. Yeah. It's That's just crazy. gross. Yeah. That's crazy. Terrible. Yeah. Any well, other final thoughts? Just terrible that the police like denied the blatant evidence, really. Isn't it awful? There's so many of these cases that I read up on that are absolutely garbage police work. Just garbage. And it's like, I would I be was... so disgusted if anybody that I was close to was murdered for one and then to blatantly just be disregarded already you're already disregarded because you were murdered being blatantly disregarded again by the people that are supposed to be helping you know 
for them is to just a get away. Yeah. Fucking level of just disgusting. Yeah, you definitely hope that if somebody ends up killing you, that they get caught and yeah. get some kind of, mm-hmm. you know, and someone cares. You know what you, I mean? Yeah. It's you know, awful for them to get away with it. Is Thank you. Yeah, I know. I'm just thankful that some of them get solved. And luckily, the two sheriffs that are on the case now seem like they do actually care. It's crazy that they have those connections. That's probably what really sparked it, I would think, you know? Yeah, and that probably inspired that kid to become a Mm -hmm. detective, whatever. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's wild. Mm hmm. Any thoughts from you? Silent. Silent Bob over there. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you again for being on the pod. Do you want to go ahead and plug, like, your Spotify and stuff in there? Benzo the Code. You can look that up on Apple Music, Spotify, YouTube, everything. Uh, Like she said, I made, like, the theme music for the intro. So, um, but I make, uh, you know, a lot of other music as well. So you can find me on all those platforms. Hell yeah. (laughs) Listen to it or you're lame. That part. (laughs) Super lame. (laughs) We'll hate you forever and you can't be part of our cool club. All right. Until next time, stay high. Stay safe. And thank you for listening.